David has fled for his life. Saul is out to kill him. David runs to God. He flees to the temple, to the tabernacle, to the Ark of the Covenant, to where the priests are, which is the city of Nob. When he gets there, the priest, Ahimelech, is alarmed because David is traveling alone. This is clearly very odd behavior. This is not the behavior of an innocent man. Why would David be fleeing alone? A person of David's status would travel with servants even on very trivial business. David lies to Ahimelech. Two weeks ago, we encountered Michal, um, David's wife, lying to her father Saul. And we asked ourselves the question, is it ever okay to lie? We noticed that Michal lied once to save David's life and once to save her own life. And we didn't really answer the question, or at least I didn't really answer the question. We just noticed that it was a a tough question. We, we talked about how the Bible plainly expects God's people to speak the truth because God is truth and no lie is found in him. But we also recognize that in certain circumstances, um, such as Dietrich Bonhoeffer lying to the Gestapo in Nazi Germany in order to save the lives of others, Jews on the run, ordinance training for ministry, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he... Um, for him to have been unprepared to lie would have meant remaining pure, but yet asking others to pay the price for that. And so Dietrich Bonhoeffer lied. And here David lies to protect Ahimelech. Ahimelech is very alarmed by alarming behavior. David is traveling the country unaccompanied. That's not the behavior of an innocent man. What is up? An extraordinary explanation is needed in order to account for extraordinary behavior. And the lie that David tells is clearly designed to keep Ahimelech safe. It's designed to protect Ahimelech. For if David was to tell Ahimelech the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, that would place Ahimelech in an impossible position. He would be forced to choose. To choose between loyalty to David or loyalty to Saul. And that was an impossible choice in many ways, but especially because David himself did not want other people to be disloyal to Saul, who is king over Israel. So we understand why David lies. He tells Ahimelech that he is on a secret mission that is urgent. The secrecy of the mission accounts for him not being able to provide any authenticating details. Sorry, sorry, buddy, I can't tell you anything. It's a secret. The urgency of the mission accounts for him not having any of the things you'd expect him to have on such a mission, such as servants and comrades, bread and supplies, swords and armor. Ahimelech buys the lie. Um, never a moment of doubt. 
And he does two things for Ahimelech. He gives him bread and he gives him Goliath's sword. And both actions are worth considering. So firstly, Ahimelech gives David the the showbread, the the bread of the presence, 12 loaves of consecrated bread that were put on the holy table in front of the Ark of the Covenant. And this bread was renewed each Sabbath. Um, uh, Every seventh day, renewed, replaced with hot bread. And that bread had a two-way function. It, It had a priestly role. It was a prayer. The 12 tribes represented by 12 loaves give us this day our daily bread. And the bread had a prophetic role. Speaking to the 12 tribes on behalf of the Lord, the Lord will provide. And people do not live by bread alone, but rather by the word of the living God, their Lord. Um, After a week, the bread, once removed and replaced, could be eaten by the priests um, who, who, who ministered in the tabernacle, but not by other worshippers. Um, you had to be a descendant of Aaron and to be serving in the tabernacle and to eat it in a holy place in order for you to be eligible to eat the showbread. Well, Ahimelech agrees to give David this bread on the proviso that he and his men are ceremonially clean, and ceremonially clean in the same manner that the Levitical priests would have been expected to have been clean if they were ministering in the holy place. He gives them the bread, and in giving him the bread, Ahimelech is breaking the law of Moses. Leviticus chapter 24 verse 9 tells us that the bread belongs to Aaron and his descendants, and they were to eat it in the holy place. The action suggests that Ahimelech is able to break the letter of the law in order to keep the spirit of it. In other words, that compassion in response to urgent need represents God's character more accurately in this case than a legalistic adherence to the letter of the law would have represented God's character. And that's kind of what David is doing. He's breaking the law. You shall not bear false witness. As an act of compassion, though, he lies to Elimelech in order to protect him. So that's the first action. Ahimelech gives David bread. The second action is that Ahimelech gives David the sword of Goliath, which has been preserved, we notice, as a holy relic wrapped in cloth and kept in a holy place. Well, David himself had secured this sword. It is David's when he defeated Goliath back back in chapter 17. Obviously what had happened is that the priests had appropriated it as a holy relic, something for people to come and visit the tabernacle and to see. Um. What is holiness? If it's a holy relic, what is, what is holiness? Well, holiness can have a number of legitimate meanings in the Bible. Um, holy things like holy bread, holy ground, holy tables, uh, um, holy spaces. That carries the meaning of set apart for God's exclusive use. Holiness, when it refers to God, refers to his perfect otherness. His moral perfection. Uh, his total and complete 
perfect otherness. And these two ideas are joined insofar as we know from Scripture that holy things cannot mix with things that are profane. The holy and the profane do not go together. They cannot mix. But hold on, given that notion of holiness, um, isn't a Philistine sword the last word in profanity? I mean, what's this doing in the tabernacle? It's a vile thing used to kill people. Its whole purpose is to kill Israelite men, women, and children. This is an unlikely thing to grab and preserve and place in a holy place as a holy relic. It's the last word in profanity. So why did Ahimelech did so? Why did he put Goliath's sword in a holy place? Well, because kept precious and wrapped in cloth, the Israelites, running low on faith, could come in and they could fix their eyes on this sword. And remember, yes, actually, the Lord reigns. Here's the proof. I can keep trusting him. I can keep putting my faith in the Lord even when my world is going to hell in a handbasket because this thing reminds me that the Lord is totally, sovereignly in charge and I can keep on trusting in him even when the appearance of things is awful. So Goliath's sword is an odd thing to find in the sanctuary. But it's not as odd as finding a cross in the church. Because a cross is an instrument of torture and execution. Uh, It's perfected by people who did not know God, who did not trust in him, and who frequently persecuted those who did. They intended, the cross is intended to communicate the total victory of brutal power over all other things. And that power is made perfect in killing people. Indeed, our king was crucified on a cross. Surely, Surely the cross is the last word in profanity. But indeed, we likewise might might take a cross and stick it in our church and we might take a cross and put it on a wall at home and fix our eyes on it when we're running low on faith and remember, yes, the Lord reigns. Um, Surely that was the most profane, disgusting, evil thing that ever happened and yet it was by God's design and God used it. And out of that comes my salvation. Jesus died upon the cross for me in order that I might be forgiven and receive the Holy Spirit and eternal life. If God can take that from that, then I will keep on trusting that even as my life goes to hell in a handbasket, the Lord reigns. And I will put my faith in him and do things his way. So um, David receives bread and a sword. He leaves with what he needs. Uh, He came in hungry and needing a sword. He leaves fed with bread and with Goliath's sword. Now, Ahimelech's job, as he may have seen it, was to keep the holy place holy. 
set apart for God's exclusive use, speaking of the otherness of God. David ran there because he knew that God is useful. David came to a holy place needing food and protection, and he came away with both. Equipped with what he needed to serve God in unholy places. Um, Anglican priests, speaking as an Anglican priest, Anglican priests can often become obsessive uh, about in their desire to keep holy things holy. Holy space, holy time, holy music, bread and wine, cups and dishes, tables, things set apart for God's exclusive use, speaking of the otherness of God. But I hope and pray that actually we can all come here like David, needy people, knowing that God is our only hope and that we can come away from here each week equipped with what we need to serve God in unholy places. Um, along the way, the story has noted for us the presence of a third person, Doeg the Edomite, Saul's head shepherd. He's an Edomite. He's from the land of Edom. That's a country to the south of Judah. They are a brother nation. They're the descendants of Esau, Jacob's older twin brother. So these Edomites, they're not Israelites, but they are a closely related nation. And the Edomites, they always had a reputation for being a brutal, warrior-like people. Um, Herod the Great, by the way, was an Edomite, uh, or an Idumean, as they were known in Jesus' day. Um, Doag is, we are told, detained before the Lord. What does that mean? Well, it means that obviously he was involved in some kind of ritual or some other prescribed action in the law of Moses such that he might make the transition back from being unclean, ceremonially unclean, to being ceremonially clean. That's what he was doing there. He's involved in some religious activity. He, with David, he shares the idea that God's holy place is useful. But by the end of the story, it is clear that Doeg is not a holy man. He is a profane man. A few days later, Doeg seizes an opportunity for political advancement in Saul's administration. Doeg's motives, his selfish ambition, it's clear. Perhaps he could have been forgiven for simply informing on David. After all, David at this point in time does look like someone who perhaps is in treacherous rebellion against the throne. But Doag, we notice, embellishes the story, adding a detail that is a slanderous lie. Ahimelech did not inquire of the Lord on David's behalf. Doag wants to make the most of something he perceives as his own good fortune so as to advance his position with the king to climb the ladder in the administration. Ahimelech, together with all the priests of Nobel, they're sent for and they find themselves facing an inquisition. And as we read that inquisition, it's obvious that Saul is an irrational tyrant. What he demands, the execution of the priests of the Lord, is obviously an unbearable, irrational evil, an abhorrent atrocity. 
the guards openly rebel against the command. They're not going to have priests' blood on their hands, especially when those priests are so plainly innocent. But again, Doag seizes the day. And he goes berserk. Not only does he kill 85 priests in priestly garb, but also the entire town with its women, children, men, babies, even livestock. It is as bizarre as it is repulsive. Doeg is using it as an opportunity to demonstrate to Saul his zealousness in defending Saul's royal honor. Um, For many of us, it may seem completely incongruous that this same Doag was detained in the house of God, attending, obviously, to some religious matter in a believing way. But for others of us, this is depressingly familiar. Doag is a religious man. A man who certainly believes in God, certainly in the God of the Bible, certainly is regular in his attendance, and with respect to all outward signs of righteousness and legalistic perfection, blameless. Perhaps as an Edomite, perhaps as an outsider, his desire to fit in just made him a tad neurotic, as it certainly did for Herod the Great and his sons. Doag and David both understand the usefulness of God. You wouldn't want to be without him. But for Doag, or um, for Doag, God, or more accurately, religion, is useful for advancing the interests of Doag. Coming ceremonially clean from the temple, uh, Doeg undoubtedly thinks of himself as righteous, and at the end of the day, he probably went home thinking he'd done God a service in his zealous persecution of the rebels, but he is blind. One priest survives, Abiatha, Ahimelech's son. He escaped and fled to David, who by this time was living in a cave, surrounded by an ever-growing crowd of discontents and misfits. And actually, we'll look at that story next week. But David confesses to Abiatha, I am responsible for all these deaths. I knew Doag would tell. David's lie, meant to protect Ahimelech, actually led to his destruction because Ahimelech was totally unprepared for Saul's Spanish Inquisition. David was trying to protect Ahimelech from a reality that actually, ultimately, Ahimelech could not be protected from. That being that he needed to choose whose side he was on, David's or Saul's. Likewise, we too often try to protect people from kingdom realities. But actually, as with David, such thinking is wrong. Because the fact of the matter is, Jesus Christ is Lord and he's coming back. And we must all decide whose side we are on. 
we cannot serve both God and the world. David has learned from his mistake when it comes to Abiathar, the son. He's learned from his mistake. And actually David spells it out for Abiathar. He says, you've crossed over, Abiathar. There's no going back. You're with me now, and I'm with you, and I'll always protect you. But let's be clear about this. You have become and now always will be a member of the kingdom of David. And by that fact, the kingdom of Saul is out to get you. David was slow to understand something that Jesus knew perfectly and taught clearly. To be in his kingdom was to invite persecution. You have to make a choice. You can't obey Jesus and the world at the same time. Does this text, therefore, condemn David's lie or teach us not to lie? The answer to both questions is no. Is it always wrong to lie? The answer is, I don't know. These stories aren't moral lessons designed to prod us into a more moral life. Nor are these stories inspirational stories designed to inspire us into higher things. David did the best that he could, and God looked after him. There was grace for David. You see, actually, ultimately, there's only one hero in Old Testament narratives, and it's always God. Um, Page 231 to 233 in our Pew Bibles, they give us the externals, and uh, we read about the externals today. What happened where, who said what, and did what? The externals. If we now flip in our Pew Bibles to page 458, we'll get an open window into the internals of this event, how David prayed. You see, we're going to flip to Psalm 52, and Psalm 52 has a subtitle. And that subtitle, which you can see for yourself if you're with me on page 458, Psalm 52, the subtitle says, There we are. The subtitle says, For the director of music, a mascal of David, when Doeg the Edomite had gone to Saul and told him, David has gone to the house of Ahimelech. Well, this is a psalm. And because it's a psalm, we straight away know three things about it. Firstly, we know it's a prayer. We know it's a prayer because it's a psalm. These are words for speaking to God. This is prayer. Secondly, it's a poem. We know it's a poem because it's a psalm, and all psalms are poems. They employ Hebrew poetic forms and poetic language and imagery. And thirdly, because it's a psalm, we know it's a song, something that was and is and will be put to music so that the people of God can sing this stuff to God either by themselves or corporately at worship. Psalm 52 began life, therefore, on the day described in chapter 22 of 1 Samuel. David prayed this. 
Later on, he wrote it down and he crafted its form so that it would conform to a structure known as a mascul. Nobody knows what a mascul is, but it's presumably a literary or musical term. It was for the director of music. David did this because he knew by the Holy Spirit that he was onto something eternally useful and spiritually vital. Now, as Christians, we know that we have to keep real short accounts with God. All sins forgiven. When somebody sins against us, all sins forgiven every day. No argument. And all anger dealt with by sundown, lest we give the devil an opportunity, as Paul warns us in Ephesians, an open door into our lives. So knowing those truths, let's look at this psalm, Psalm 52. For the director of music, a mascal of David, when Doeg the Edomite had gone to Saul and told him, David has gone to the house of Ahimelech. Verse 1. Why do you boast of evil, you mighty hero? Why do you boast all day long? You who are a disgrace in the eyes of God. You who practice deceit. Your tongue plots destruction. It's like a sharpened razor. You love evil rather than good, falsehood rather than speaking the truth. You love every harmful word, you deceitful tongue. Surely God will bring you down to everlasting ruin. He will snatch you up and pluck you from your tent. He will uproot you from the land of the living. The righteous will see and fear. They will laugh at you, saying, Here now is the man who did not make God his stronghold, but trusted in his great wealth and grew strong by destroying others. Um, Who is David talking to? Well, it sure looks like he's talking to Doag, doesn't it? But if we thought that, we'd be wrong. I mean, we've just ran through, in our English translation, we've just ran through 15 uses of the second person pronoun, you and your. Who is the you? It looks like Doag, but let's continue. Uh, Verse 8. But I am like an olive tree, flourishing in the house of God. I trust in God's unfailing love forever and ever. Oh, now it's swapped. Now it actually looks like, we don't know who he's talking to, but it looks like David is talking to himself, about himself. But now we get to verse 9, the last verse. For what you have done, I will always praise you in the presence of your faithful people. And I will hope in your name, for your name is good. Um, Who is David talking to? Well, he's talking to God. This is a prayer. He has always been talking to God. Ranting and raving about Doeg the Edomite, to be sure, in, in, in the first seven verses. Talking to Doeg as though he was there, to be sure, but he's not there. He's not in the presence of Doeg. Actually, he's in the presence of the Lord Jesus. He's praying. Actually, David has been talking to God all along. Sometimes it sounds like he's talking to somebody else who isn't there. Sometimes it sounds like he's talking to himself. Sometimes it sounds like he's talking to But actually, prayer is like that. And if you spend a lot of time by yourself, you shouldn't get used to this. Prayer is like this. What is David doing? It's embarrassing. 
Well, actually, he's given us an open window into something very intimate and personal, but what he's doing is he's ranting and raving. Saul isn't the only one who could have a good rant and a good rave. David, it turns out, is just as good at ranting and raving as Saul is. But unlike Saul, who ranted and raved in in his royal palace and chucked javelins at folk, David rants and raves in the presence of God, in prayer. And that's a key difference. Why is that important? Because David is beside himself with anger and rage. I mean, he's just been in the middle of this awful atrocity. He's going to have lots of emotions, overwhelming emotions, and anger and rage. Obviously, he's going to be beside himself with anger and rage. And what's the problem with this? Is The problem is that you can't deal with emotions except by expressing them. If you've got an emotion, it's going to be with you until the day you die unless you express it. That's how we deal with emotions. What is David doing? David is venting. He is venting heat in order to prevent a core meltdown. He is venting steam in order to prevent a boiler explosion. And David is going to feel a lot better after this. Because David has done two things. He has expressed his anger to God. And he has given his anger to God. And there is healing in progress. Thank you. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, that David had the insight to write this down. Thank you, Father, that Psalm 52 has been preserved for us and for our use. And thank you, Holy Spirit, that this is going to bear fruit as we live our lives and meditate on your word. Because it's essential we do the same thing. And there are many good ways of doing this. Praying the Psalms is how we learn how to do this. Um, One way that I do this, and I practice this frequently, is that I write down, if I've got an emotion that's disturbing me, um, or an event or a memory, I, I take a beach ball and I write the emotion the name of the emotion on the beach ball in my imagination. Not a real beach ball, obviously. Otherwise, I would need an infinite supply of beach balls. But, you know, whatever it is, oh, Lord, that was so embarrassing, shaming. I feel so guilty. I was so angry, irritated, frustrated, despairing, um, embarrassed, ashamed, whatever it is. I write the word on a beach ball and I give it into Jesus' hands. And I ask Jesus to take it from me, and he does. And um, I surrender the bad feelings to Jesus, and I ask them to take them from me. And when I do this, a number of things can then happen. Firstly, Jesus does and will uh, heal that place in my heart that was damaged, and the feelings go. Secondly, Jesus can show me when I ask him, what I, he can show me what he was doing in my life through that event. In particular, perhaps, why he allowed that happen to happen to me. And in terms of prayer ministry, when, when myself and I and my teammates are praying for a third person, and, 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 and they're going through this and we're helping them with it, and we ask the Lord Jesus to show that person why God allowed that to happen, I have never known Jesus not to answer them. 
Jesus has always answered them, and the answer has always been revolutionary. It's changed everything for them. As they've heard from the Lord what, what he was doing. Thirdly, if I've forgotten to forgiven, if I've forgotten to forgive anyone in connection with that event, I can remember to forgive them then. Um, if there is any um, event in your past wherein, in remembering that event, you continue to experience the same emotion as when that event first happened, you need healing. Only Jesus can heal your broken heart. Now, if you want my help in this, as someone who's in the business of restoring holiness and wholeness, just ask for it. At the end of the service, you can come forward and we can pray together. Or you can make a time, please make a time, and we'll meet together during the week to pray and ask Jesus to heal your broken heart. But if you don't want to ask me, you might want to ask somebody else, that's fine. You might want to ask no one else, that's fine too. Only Jesus can heal your broken heart. And so, before the day had closed, before the sun had set, David had forgiven Doag. Where's forgiveness in Psalm 52? Well, actually, it's in verse 5. Um, verse 5. Surely God will bring you down to everlasting ruin. He will snatch you up and pluck you from your tent. He will uproot you from the land of the living. Surely God. Forgiveness is laying down our legal right to repayment in kind, irrespective of how we feel. David could have murdered Doag, he could have done that in the name of justice. He could have done it in the name of Ahimelech. He could have done it in the name of Abiathar or in, indeed a, a dozen other names. David could have, in the name of justice, murdered Doag. In verse 5, David transfers his legal right to repayment in kind into God's hands. Surely God will destroy you. Doak, and therefore I will not raise a hand against you. At the be- Before he prayed this prayer, Doag was in danger from David. After this prayer, after verse 5, forever off, uh, on, after verse 5, Doag is safe from David and in danger from God. Surely God, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. That is why we are to repay evil with good and never evil with evil because vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. Let's um, finish with a prayer. Father, thank you for feeding us with your word. Thank you for putting a sword in our hands. Thank you, Jesus, that you will be with us. You promise to be with us. With us, your holy people, Father, through Jesus Christ, your Son. As we go from this holy place and this holy time, 
thank you for equipping us to serve you in unholy places. May it all be to the glory of God and in Christ's name. Amen.